while they're going out, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. That's where our first scripture will be this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 7. As I think everyone knows, this, uh, this period of time that we're in, uh, many people know as Lent. Some churches observe Lent. It's an important part of their, their church year and what they do. Other churches, on the other hand, don't observe Lent. They, they don't observe the different aspects of, of Lent, which many people are familiar with. I grew up in a church that observed Lent. We, we had special services uh, and special uh, things that related to Lent that we did as a church body. One of the things that some people do during the Lenten season is, is they will fast from something. They will give up, whether it be food or uh, some kind of entertainment or, or something in their life, that they choose to give up for a period of time uh, to, to work in their hearts so that they are able to, to relate to God more clearly, to remove clutter and busyness, whatever it might be from their lives. For them, that's, that's one of the main things about Lent. Um, if, you, if you pay attention, if you happen to be in going down Aberdeen on 6th Avenue, one of the ways we know it's Lent is just by looking at the restaurant signs. Uh, Friday nights you'll see advertisements or specials for fish because uh, some, some people who observe Lent uh, give up eating any meat on Fridays. Uh, so there's a there's a variety of things that go along with with Lent for different church groups, different denominations, different people who celebrate Lent. But unfortunately, one thing that can accompany uh, this season of Lent uh, is is focusing so much on ourself and our sin that we miss God's grace. You see, for many people, many traditions. There, it, there's a good sense in which it's good to reflect on our uh, our own sinfulness, which is results because of our sin. Christ needed to suffer and to die, which is which is what Lent is building towards Christ's death, and then on Easter Sunday His resurrection. And so there's, there's not necessarily anything wrong with introspection, with looking in to to our own sin and our heart to ask God to purify us and to make us who he wants us to be. But often, for some, for some people, that introspection results in them trying to pay back God because of their sin. They see that their, their sinfulness is, is evil. They feel the burden of the guilt of their sin, and they want to try to make it up to God. And they'll do that through a variety of things. Maybe, maybe the fast that they have will be as a way to, to earn God's favor so that God will be pleased with them once again. And, and this is what is a dangerous thing. If we think we can pay God back for our sin, we can't. And that's good. God would have it no other way. And the reason He would have it no other way, the reason God doesn't want us to be able to, to pay Him back is because He is a gracious God that delights in showing unworthy people 
His kindness and His mercy. And so, as we think about what's going on around us and many people that you may know who are practicing Lent, uh, praise God for those who are who do it in sincerity and do it with a proper balance. But, but as we think about those who who maybe see Lent as a as a time of uh, of guilt and remorse and trying to earn God's favor, we can uh, be mar- we can marvel at God's grace in our own lives and share that grace with them as well. And today, today what we're going to look at is we're going to look at three different ways, three different aspects of our salvation in which we see God's demonstration of grace. The first place we see this is that God demonstrates His grace through the way that He chooses those whom He chooses. God, we call that word choosing, some Bibles have the word elect or election. Um, God chooses those who will be His, those who He will set His love and His affection on. And so as we think of this first way, seeing God's grace and how He chooses, you can think of this phrase and remember this phrase. It's not because of who you are. It's not because of who you are. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where we're going to start, we see that, that God's grace is demonstrated in His choosing of the people of Israel as a nation. When He chooses to set His love, His affection, His special care and attention on the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy, starting at verse 6 through 8, we can see what this, what this is. He says in verse 6, For you are a, a, whole, a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples of the face of the earth. God chose Israel over any other nation. He singled Israel out as the nation on which He would make a covenant with them and to be their God and they would be His people. He would raise them up and through, through them He would bring salvation through the Messiah that was to come. But we have to ask the question, maybe, maybe you have, maybe you haven't asked the question, why Israel? Why did, why did God not choose another nation instead? Why did He decide to pick Israel? On what basis did God choose them over someone else? What was it about Israel that made them unique or special? The answer we see is in, in verse 7 and verse 8. Look with me. God says, after saying that I chose you to be my treasure possession, He says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What is he saying here? What is, what is God saying when he speaks to the nation of Israel here? He's saying that his basis for choosing them, for, for selecting them to be his special people, wasn't really about them at all. It wasn't, wasn't that there was anything special or unique about them. There wasn't. That set them apart from other nations. In fact, in a sense, 
They were nobodies. It says they were fewer in number than, than all the other nations. They were less than, less than significant, less than important. So if we are to find a reason for why God chose Israel, a basis on which He chose Israel, the only place we can look is into the heart and the character of God Himself. Not in the people of Israel, their nation of Israel, but in God. We see that this basis, this reason, comes from within Him, from His character, His love and His faithfulness. God, God is love. It's part of, part of God's nature to pour out and lavish His love on those who are not worthy. That is the essence of grace. Kindness towards those who are not worthy. Blessings on those who do not deserve it. Undeserved kindness. And we see it in that God is faithful. He says in verse, uh, verse 7, excuse me, verse 8, uh, we see that it is His love. He says, because the Lord loves you his, and His faithfulness to the promise that He made, in keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. You see, God, God made a promise to, to their forefathers, Israel's, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give the land of Canaan to their descendants. And now... He, at this point in Deuteronomy, He is fulfilling this promise that he, he made them to give them this land. And it's not because of something within the Israelites that He's fulfilling this promise, but because He is faithful and faithfulness that resides in Him. It is, it is as though God is saying, if you want to know why I love you and have set, my, set you apart, to, and give you this land, it's not because of who you are, it's because of who I am. That's what God says when He chooses Israel. His choosing of Israel to be His treasured people demonstrates His amazing, amazing grace. And we see that, the, the next place we see this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you would turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We see that God demonstrates His grace in his dealings with, with individuals as well, and his choosing of them to set his affections on them and give them the blessings of, of salvation. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. We'll start in verse, chapter, or verse 26. As you're flipping there, I want you to think about, think about some of the characteristics that our world looks for when it is determining who to choose for various roles or positions. Maybe it's at a at a workplace when they're choosing who to hire for employees or who to, to promote to the next, the next level in the company. Or maybe it's on a team, a sports team, when they're choosing who to, who to bring onto the team. Or at a school, who to, who to bring in to, to be on staff. Think about some of the characteristics that, that we look for when we filling these roles and positions. Oftentimes we look for those who have a high level of skill or, or ability in some, in some area. Maybe it's we look for a high degree of intelligence or strength or speed or power or status or any number of things when we think about 
who, what we look for when we're going to fill these roles and positions in society. But God, God doesn't operate like that. God doesn't choose who He will show His love and His, His grace to based on these things. Look at verse from verse 26 to 28 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. God does, God does not choose people because of their exceptional qualities or exemplary characteristics. In fact, it may be the opposite that is true. Paul's point here is that God intentionally chooses to save unexceptional people through the means of the gospel of Christ. And this gospel, this good news itself, the way the world sees it, the gospel and the message of the cross is itself foolish and a sign of weakness and and the gospel is despised by the people in the world and that is how God chooses to operate when he saves a people for himself and when he looks on us to grant us grace in saving us and the reason he does this is so that he alone will get the glory for anyone who is saved so now we've seen that that in both his choosing of Israel as a nation and in his choosing of individuals for salvation, God demonstrates his immeasurable grace. And it's not because of who you are, but because of his grace in his choosing. The second place we see, see God's grace demonstrated, first was in his choosing, but we also see it in the redemption and salvation that he works through his son Jesus in the actual salvation which he brings about through Christ. The first phrase that, that I had you remember was, it's not because of who you are. The second, second phrase I want you to remember is that it's in spite of who you are. Not just, not just not because of who you are, but in spite of who you are. We've already seen that God's choosing of us isn't based at all on who we are. We, we have no special qualities to lay before God in hopes that he would pay attention to us and and give us his attention and his love and his grace. But God's grace goes one step further than that even. Not only does does God's choosing of us not have nothing to do with who we are, but we are saved in spite of who we are. We've determined that that we're not we're not in the category of exceptional but some might be tempted to think, oh, I'm not exceptional, so I'm content at being just average. But, but the Bible's diagnosis of us, what the Bible says about us is worse, that we're, we're not exceptional and we're not even average. We're way below that even. In school, you may have, you maybe tried hard for a while in school to get A's and B's, um, and for, for some, A's and B's just were too, too much. It was too tough to get, to wrap your mind around all these things. And, and so you gave up trying hard to get A's and B's. And so you began to be content with C's or maybe even just the barely passing D. 
Um, and when we think about the, the on a spiritual level in God's grading scale, uh, we're, we, we're, we'd probably admit that we're not A plus students in a spiritual level. But on our spiritual report card, we're not even B, C, or even D students. Each of us, by nature, has been given a failing grade before God. Turn to Titus 3. Titus chapter 3. Here we see an amazing contrast that God sets before us when he talks about the salvation that comes in Christ. Titus chapter 3, starting at verse 3. He gives us a description of of who we are before Christ in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What did God do for, for those foolish, disobedient, selfish, malicious, hateful people? For, for us who cling to Christ, He saved us, it says in verse 5. It says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 says that we are justified, or in other words, we are declared to be righteous before God. He, he says, I declare you righteous in my sight. And how is this salvation and justification described in these verses that we just read? This saving action on on God's part is done, as it says in verse 5, according to His own mercy. So rather rather than us receiving the just punishment that we deserve, we are given salvation instead. And this can happen only because Christ took our place and was punished for our sin. Verse 7, the description that he gives of justification is that it is by his grace. We are declared to be righteous, not because we are righteous, not because we are actually perfect in holiness, but because of God's undeserved favor, because of his grace. We see, see this again in, in Romans chapter 5. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 6. This has one of the most beautiful descriptions and uh, descriptions of God's love for us in Christ. Verse 6, uh, each of these verses from, from 6 through 10 shows us part of who we are before Christ who we are apart from Christ. Verse 6 says that that we are weak or helpless and ungodly. It says in verse 6, For while we were still still weak, at the right time 
Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8 it says that apart from Christ, we are by nature and by practice sinners. It says, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And there's another description of who we are before coming to Christ in verse 10. It says that we are God's enemies. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. And so what does, what does Paul say to each of these descriptions of who we are? To, these, to us that are helpless, ungodly, His enemies, sinners? He says that though we were helpless and ungodly, Christ died for us anyways. Though we were God's enemies, through Jesus He provided the means by which we could be reconciled to Him. Because of Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection, our relationship with God is put right and we receive full salvation. That's God's response to us who are helpless, ungodly, sinful, and and at enmity, enmity with Him as His enemies. And for all of this, all of these things, there's there's no better there's no better uh, word than the, than the word for love that's used here in the Greek original Greek, the word agape, which some of you may have heard of before. This word agape is describing a love that's not rooted in the lovableness of the one who is being loved, not in the not in the object of the person who's being loved, not in their lovableness, but it's rooted, this love is rooted in the, the character of the one who does the loving, in this case God. What God demonstrates here is that He, by His nature, is a loving God when He sends His Son Jesus to die for unworthy sinners. And for all of this, uh, we, we see a beautiful picture of God's love. Uh, there's a theologian named Charles Hodge that observed, if God loved us because we loved Him, He would love us only so long as we loved Him and on that condition. And then our salvation would depend on the constancy of our treacherous hearts. But... As God loved us as sinners, as Christ died for us as ungodly, our salvation depends, as the Apostle argues, not on our loveliness, but on the constancy of the love of God. And so in Titus and in Romans we see that the redemption that God provides through Christ comes in spite of who we are. And that is a demonstration to us of God's matchless grace. So we've seen God's grace demonstrated in, in the way that He chooses. We've seen God's grace demonstrated in the salvation and redemption that He accomplished in Christ. And the things that we see from those demonstrations is that it's not because of who we are, but it's in spite of who we are. And we come to our third point today that God demonstrates His grace 
um, through the channel or the means that He has appointed for us to be given righteousness. God has appointed that we are able to receive a righteousness not of our own through a certain channel, through a, a, a specific means. He, it comes, our righteousness comes through, as we'll see, comes through faith and not through works. And so we see God's grace in this as well. And the phrase to remember in this is that it's not because of what you do. It's not because of who you are. It's in spite of who you are. And it's not because of what you do. I think most people would, would readily admit that God's saving grace comes to us in spite of the bad things that we do. If we are all honest with ourselves, we know that we're sinners and that we've committed many sins in our lifetime, daily, if we're honest with ourselves. Wrapped up in the reality of our sinful nature is the fact that we have actual sin. We commit sin in our, in our minds, in our desires, in our words, in our actions. We have actual sin along with wrapped in with who we are as sinners. Uh, but sadly, many people live their lives in a vicious cycle of trying to make themselves right before God by their good deeds, by their good works. And this is a vicious cycle. When they sin, they feel the burden of, of their guilt, the weight of their, of their guilt, knowing that their sin is not hidden from God. They realize God knows my sinfulness. He knows what I just did, what I just thought, what I just said. And He hates it. They feel the guilt that comes with that. And so... What they perceive from what they perceive about God is that God's attitude towards them has switched from the smile of joyful satisfaction to the frown of a distant disappointment. And for and this cycle is is those even Christians is, is who I'm mainly referring to that go through life this way, up and down, depending on how they think God is viewing them. And, and so when they feel this guilt, they feel, uh, perceive as though God might be frowning upon them, what they do is they begin attempting to regain God's favor, to regain God's smile, as it were, which they once had but, but now lost because of their sin that they just did. And they believe that their good works or their deeds of penance can in effect outweigh their sin. They can do more good deeds or do enough good things or do it well enough or sincerely enough that God will once again be pleased with them and they will have His favor. But we want, what we're going to see today is that God's favor, all of God's favor that we have does not come by our works. Before we come to Christ or after we come to Christ, God's favor does not rest upon our good deeds and our good works the Bible speaks of our, our attempts, uh, our, our good works in many places uh, by the use of the word law. It is when we attempt to gain right standing with God by obeying His laws and His commandments found in the Bible, in Scripture. So let's look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, 
starting at verse 15. It says, For we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus, so that we have been so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. He says that a person is not justified by works of the law, not made right before God or given God's favor by the good deeds that they do in obedience to God's commands. He says again, by works of the law, no one will be justified. And you don't have to turn there, but if you think back to Titus chapter 3 where we were, it says something similar. It says that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Uh, Galatians, turn, turn to the next chapter, Galatians chapter 3, in verse 10 through 14. It says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul says that, that not only can we not have right standing with God by the works of the law, but also that those who rely on their works to bring them favor with God are in fact under a curse. Not only will our good works not result in right standing within God, but it will result in the opposite, a curse from God. And so the question is, if our righteousness doesn't come through our obedience to God's commands, through keeping the law, God's laws, what does it come through? And the answer to that is through faith in Jesus, through faith. Let's learn from Paul's example. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. few books over Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, chapter 3, verses 3 through 9. If anyone, if, if there was anyone that could have confidence to stand before God because of who he was or because of what he did, it would have been Paul. Here, let's see what Paul says about his own good works, starting in verse 3. It says, For we are the circumcision... Worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless so what what paul is saying here he's he's giving listing some pretty substantial things in his in his setting in his culture and in his religious setting among the jews he was he was the cream of the crop he was the best of the best his pedigree his his family heritage was was excellent his religious standing was at the top 
His record at keeping the law from all outward standards was perfect. But what did, what did all of this that he, he says here, what did all of this get him? Not a thing. When he finally was, when, when God, when Jesus came to, to Paul on the road to Damascus and gave him new eyes to see the depths of his sin and to see his need for a Savior and the, the wonderful provision that was in Christ, what did, what did Paul then go on to say about all of his good deeds, all of these things that he could have held up before God before? Look at verse 7 and 8 of, of Philippians chapter 3. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why would he say that? Why would he, why would he consider all, all those good things which he valued so much uh, before now to be so worthless? And the reason is because before God, he realized his own righteousness, which he was trying to get through obeying God's laws, would not get him anywhere. He needed Christ's righteousness, which can only come through faith. Look at, look at the end of verse 8 and verse 9 in that chapter. He says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So we see righteousness comes not through the law. Our declaration that we are righteous doesn't come through our obedience to God's commands, but through faith, through trusting in God's promises and through his son Jesus, what he accomplished through Christ. But theoretically, God, I mean, God, God does have unlimited power, and so theoretically, couldn't he have made a way in which righteousness could come through obedience to the law, provided that we could actually keep the commands? And if so, why, why did God choose faith rather than works to be the means by which we are made righteous? Romans chapter 4 has the answer to that. So turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 is a chapter that's looking back at the promise that God had given to Abraham back in the book of Genesis. Um, And specifically in verse 13, there's a promise that God made to Abraham and to his descendants to give him the land of Canaan. And in verse 13, we see that this promise extends not only just to the borders of Canaan, but to the, to the whole world. God promised to give Abraham and his descendants to be heirs of the world. Uh, and the question that's raised in this section is, is do the promises of God uh, does the, did the promises God makes to Abraham and his descendants come to them by their own efforts to be righteous through obedience to commandments, or does it come to them by the righteousness that God gives them through their faith and dependence on him? Verse 13 says, For the promise to Abraham and his, to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So he says, 
The answer is it comes not through the law, not through obedience, but through faith, just like we have seen already. And so here, here is the, here's where we see the why to that, the why. Why did God choose faith? Why did God ordain it to be faith and not through the law that we are made righteous? Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Do you see that? Do you, do you see the reasoning there? The first reason, he says, is, is so that not only will the, will the Jews, the adherents of the law, who have the law to obey, be able to do it, but the Gentiles, the whole world, can be offered this, the fulfillment of these promises for them. So God has, God has something bigger than just the Jews, but, but the whole world in view. And, and the main thing that we see here in, in our discussion today is, is that it, he says, in order that the promise may rest on grace. Isn't that amazing? If, if our receiving the promises of God were dependent on our obedience, uh, and we could actually perfectly obey them, then what God would be doing would uh, God's blessings would be no more than God just doling out a paycheck to us. We'd be getting what we earned, what we deserved, uh, by our keeping of the law. No grace would be displayed, but God delights to show His grace. And so, when it's by faith, when righteousness comes to us by faith, uh, not something that we earn or deserve, then God can put His undeserved kindness and unmerited favor on, on display for the universe to see. And here we see that, that God's grace is demonstrated through the means by which He makes us righteous, through faith. And it's not as a result of works as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, so that no one can boast. And here's where we see that all of this, that God demonstrates His wants to make all of our salvation based on His grace so that in eternity, none of us will boast in our own goodness, our own worthiness, our own good deeds, but so that in eternity, He will be glorified through the salvation of every single person that has ever been saved. And so here we can say, we can, we can say, say this negatively, say all of, encapsulate all of what we see negatively. God chooses us and saves us not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. God fulfills His promises to us and declares, his, declares us righteous not because of any good things we do, but in spite of the bad things we do. If we were to say, say it in the positive, it would be like this. God chooses us and saves us because of who He is. God fulfills His promises to us and declares us righteous because of what He has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not because of, of who you are, but in spite of who you are. It's not because of uh, what you've done, but it, it's, it's in spite of what we've done. And so today, what we're going to do in closing, uh, rather than uh, a song, we're going to look at one last scripture. Turn to Revelation chapter 5, verse, verses 9 through 13.
Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. This is where we see a glimpse of how our God's grace and salvation results in His glory in eternity. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that in your choosing of us, in your, your saving us in redemption in Christ, and in your, the means by which you declare us righteous by faith, all of these things point to your, your, your grace, your undeserved favor. And we thank you that you have done it this way. God, I pray that you would put in our hearts a, a rejoicing that it is for your glory a rejoicing and a desire that you be glorified in everything in our life, in our salvation and everything. So, Father, we ask that as, as we go, we would, be, we would be billboards of your grace to the world, that we would testify of your grace in our lives and to be able to pass that on and to share, share the message of your grace with the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in God's peace.